Welcome to the Life Christian Church Podcast, where our mission is to inspire people to the life God dreams for them as we spread His love in ever-widening circles. Good to see everybody. Hey, if we haven't met, my name's Terry Smith. I'm the lead pastor here at the Life Christian Church. I'm so glad you're here. And um, so a couple weeks ago, we started teaching through Hebrews, which, if you're not familiar with the New Testament, is a book in the in the New Testament actually a sermon that was put on paper, and uh, it is uh, pretty powerful. Uh, it takes a little while to kind of dig in, and we've been digging in, and I'm going to dig in now, okay? A lot to talk about, a lot to teach, um, and um, so I, I want to I begin by reading a beautiful, important, and very relevant passage of Scripture, what we're going to focus on from Hebrews today. Hebrews 2 verse 5 It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, quotes from the 8th Psalm, What is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them, yet at present we do not see everything subject to them, them being us. We're the them here. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might ta- taste death for everyone. Now we'll come back to this in 15 or 20 minutes. I'm going to take a minute to work my way to the text Um and just let me take a moment to make sure those of you who've been tracking with us the last couple of weeks get enough of a reminder of kind of what's going on here in Hebrews to appreciate what we'll talk about. And then I know, as always, there are a lot of folks who haven't uh, heard any of this, and uh, I'll catch you up just a little bit. And so the writer of Hebrews, a highly educated, well-read, and deeply concerned pastor, wrote this sermon in order to encourage discouraged Christians who were, as best we can tell, living in Rome in the mid-60s A.D. These Christians were primarily Jews who had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and Gentiles, simply meaning non-Jewish people, who had an understanding of the Jewish scriptures and an affinity for Judaism. These believers had suffered intense persecution. And uh, at this time, though there wasn't a historic persecution going on, they were very marginalized. Uh, They were rejected by the Jews in Rome because they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and they were rejected by the Romans because they believed that Jesus was Lord, not Caesar. And so in a city of about a million people, Rome in the first century, there were very few Christians. There was a population of forty to 60,000 Jews, and, and a subset of, of, of the Jewish community is a, are handfuls of followers of Jesus who are meeting in a small network of house churches as best we can tell. So these people are kind of overwhelmed by the sheer numbers that are uh, against them, that oppose them in all kinds of ways. And they had become so discouraged that that 
uh, many of them had stopped attending services, uh, and uh, many of them were thinking about li- leaving, uh, following Jesus entire, and returning either to the synagogue minus Jesus or um, uh, returning to other pre-conversion ways of life. So this pastor writes to them, as we discussed at length in week one of this series, that God has spoken to us through Jesus, that Jesus is the way, the only way we can know God, and that Jesus is greater than any other thing in the universe. And his argument is that if these people really understood who Jesus was, that they would not drift away from their faith, but rather recommit themselves to follow him and serve him with more passion than ever. In part, how he made this greater than anything argument is by saying in Hebrews 1-4 that the Son, Jesus, is far greater than the angels, just as the name God gave him is greater than their names. Why, again, is it important that he talks about how that Jesus is greater than the angels, which he spends a lot of time on, all of chapter 1, and, and, and a good part of chapter 2 of Hebrews is making the case Jesus is greater than the angels. Why was this an important case to make to these Jewish Christians? Because Scripture tells us that The Mosaic law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai by an angel. Angels held a place of reverence in Jewish thought. And um, the writer of Hebrews is coming and he's saying, Jesus is greater than the angels, as great as angels are. And Jesus is greater than Moses, as great as Moses was. And, And grace is greater than the law, as important as the law was. Jesus has come, and he is superior to all of that. So the Jews who were thinking about leaving Jesus and going to something else, he's saying if you left, you'd be leading, leaving the greater than and going to the less than. Look at Jesus. Remember who he is. He's greater even than the angels. And then um, he mentions four ways that Jesus is greater than the angels in Hebrews chapter 1, which we taught through at some length last week. If you haven't been around, you're interested in learning more about angels. I, I talked at some length last week about the angels, who they are, what they do. There are about over 250 references to angels in Scripture. Uh, there's a lot of stuff about angels. They play a very important role in the world that we cannot see. They have been hanging out with God since forever. Um, they were with God when he created the universe. They, they, we're told that, that when God created the, the planet, this planet, that the, that the angels shouted for joy. There's, so, again, you might want to go back online and, and see a, 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 a kind of detailed discussion of all of that, but ultimately what's important is in Hebrews chapter 1, the writer to the Hebrews listed four ways that I identified last week that Jesus is greater than the angels. He said, first, Jesus is God's son, and God never said that to an angel. Secondly, he said, Jesus is worshipped and served by the angels. Obviously, the greater is, is, is worshipped by the lesser. He says, Jesus will reign forever, not the angels. And then fourthly, he says, the angels are, quote, Only servants who care for those of us who have received the salvation made possible by Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 ends with these two verses. And God never said to any of the angels, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. Therefore, angels are only servants, spirits sent to care for people who will inherit salvation. 
Now, who are the people who have inherited salvation? People who believed in Jesus. And the angels now are only spirits who are sent to care for us. Well, that's how we ended last week. Um, I'm fascinated, I'll pick it up here, fascinated by the, the idea that these angels are facilitators of the gospel and that they are learning things that concern God that they didn't know about God by watching what God is doing in us and in the church. There are actually a couple of New Testament texts that speak to this. Peter speaks to it, Paul speaks to it, and then the writer of Hebrews speaks to it. Here's an example, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care. The prophets who we read in the Old Testament and who are functioning under the auspices of the law are prophesying about the coming Messiah who's going to bring a salv- who's going to bring salvation that's based on grace. So through Jesus, we have come to the end of the law. What the law of Moses ends up teaching us is that set a rule that will break it. That we're not capable of doing the things we need to do to earn the favor of God. And the law ended up showing us that we had come to the end of ourselves and we needed help. And God sent help, and God sent help in the, in the person of Jesus Christ, who came to fulfill the law, and we are counted to have kept the law simply by believing in Jesus. And this is called the gospel of grace. Through the life, death, resurrection and exaltation of Jesus. Jesus did for us what we cannot do for ourselves, and he made it possible for us to come into a reconciled relationship with God and a restoration to our purpose through God's grace. It's God saying, I know you guys can't do it, so I'm going to send Jesus who can, and if you believe in him, then we're good, okay? So, this is what the prophets in the Old Testament are prophesying about concerning this salvation. First Peter 1.10, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel, the good news about Jesus to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then he tags this line on, even angels long to look into these things. So you have to get this picture in your mind that these angels have been hanging out with God since before the beginning But now it's like their minds are blown by the gospel of grace. And they they don't understand it. They can understand it. They gave the law to Moses. So they get, you know, break the rule and you get zapped. They get that. But they don't seem to get God showing up for people like us and saving us, even though we don't deserve it, on the basis of his grace, not the fact that we earned anything from him at all. The angels look into this like, what? What is, God loves that guy? That, that seems to be the approach. Here's what Paul wrote to the Ephesians. He said, 
I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So, angels are learning about God and his grace, that which has been revealed in Jesus, by watching what God does in the church and in us. And their assignment is to take care of us. It's kind of fun. This is going to be a long sidebar. Wait a minute. Am I there yet? All right. I'm not there yet. I'm going to sidebar in a minute. Let me unsidebar. So here in the passage that I've just read from Hebrews chapter 2, we get a head spin of revelation that speaks to the mysterious nature of all this. So Hebrews 1 tells us again and again and again, Jesus is greater than the angels. But in Hebrews 2, as we'll dig in in a few minutes, we are reminded that through the incarnation, Jesus became a little lower than the angels for a little while in order to bring us salvation. And it's like the angels are having a difficult time getting that. Here, the God of the universe in the person of Jesus becomes lower than they are, a human being, in order through his life, death, resurrection, to do for us what couldn't be done for us by keeping the law. Hebrews 2.9, we see Jesus who was made lower than the angels for a little while so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So is he greater than the angels or is he lower than the angels? The answer, of course, is yes. He is and was greater than the angels but became lower than the angels for a time so he could save us. Consequently, we, mere human beings, get to taste the greater than because Jesus became lower than for a while. Are you confused yet? Someone looked at me and actually went like that. I figured you'd give me a couple hours, I'll be able to explain this. Now, here's the sidebar. I like to think about, so I'm going to talk about this for a minute, then I'm going to come to the text, and that's where we'll spend our, the, uh, uh, the end of our time together. Let's, so, we're, so we're talking about angels, and one of the things I like to, I just notice about the angels, is the way that they interact with human beings around bringing the gospel. So again, to restate, and I'm repeating myself intentionally because there's a lot here. Here these angels are. They now have been assigned the responsibility of helping to bring us salvation. So they're part of how they're doing that is they're very engaged in the announcement of the good news about Jesus. And this, and, and, and there's a, there's a commonality to the way they speak to human beings around all of this. And if I could sum it up, it's this kind of perspective. We know God is God and He can do anything He wants, but we've never seen God do anything like this, but we're going to do our job anyway. And you human beings just need to believe and get on with the program. What do I mean by that? Zachariah. Zachariah, the husband of Elizabeth, who becomes the mother of John the Baptist. Zachariah was a priest. Zachariah was fulfilling his function as a priest. He went into the holy place, and he's burning incense at the altar at the temple, which at that time would have been the temple of Herod in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, an angel shows up in the holy place, and, uh, well, Zachariah freaks out. 
I mean, that's not an exact quote from the text, but what the text actually says was that he was startled and gripped with fear. I think freaked out is a good translation. And then the angel says to him what angels always say to people when they show up unexpectedly and which they would need to say to me after resuscitating me. The angel said, do not be afraid. And then the angel starts telling Zechariah that his wife Elizabeth uh, is going to have a child and that this child is going to be a forerunner of the Messiah. Now, Zechariah and his wife, we're told in the text, are at such an age that they can't have children. Not only that, Elizabeth had never been able to conceive. But this angel says, don't be afraid. Boom, this miracle is going to happen. And you're not only going to have a child, you're going to have a child who's going to be a forerunner of the Messiah. And let's pick up the text in Luke chapter 118. Zachariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man. And then he's noticed this, husbands, what he says about his wife. And my wife is well along in years. He didn't say, I am an old man and she is an old woman. He said, I am an old man and she's getting up in years. We could teach about marriage now, but I'll keep moving on. And here's what the angel says. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent, not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at the appointed time. Now listen, guys, if you're going to read this right, you have to see Gabriel having a little bit of attitude. Okay? And Gabriel is assigned to show up and tell this guy that Gabriel doesn't know, like, who is this guy? That God's going to use him and his wife to bring a forerunner to the bringer of salvation. And all Gabriel is doing is just his job, that he was told to go do this. He shows up and he does this. And he tells this to Zachariah. And Zachariah, after getting over being afraid, say, what? This can't happen. My wife, put gently, she's too old and I'm an old guy, and it's never happened, and it's not going to happen. And then you have to hear Gabriel. He says, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Zechariah, I saw God say, let there be light, and there was light. I have seen God do everything God has done since before the beginning of time, and you're going to stand here, incense in your hand, telling me that you're too old for what God said to happen to you? No way, buddy. Look, it's going to happen, and I'll tell you what else. If you can't speak in faith, then you're going to have to shut up. And you're going to have to shut up until the baby I just told you is going to be born is going to be born. And at that moment, Zechariah becomes mute, and he doesn't speak again until John the Baptist is born, and then John the Baptist, then Zechariah finally is able to say, the first thing he says is, his name's going to be John. All right? Do you get this picture now? I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. You don't believe that God can do what God said? Well, I'll show you. If you can't speak in faith, you're not going to speak at all, buddy. The next time an angel shows up in this story is with Mary. 
Now, Mary has a little bit of a better attitude, but she's still questioning. When the angel shows up, the angel says, huh, you haven't even been with a man. I mean, Elizabeth had an old man. Mary doesn't have a man. But you're going to conceive, and, and the baby that's going to, going to be in your womb is going to be fathered by the Holy Spirit. And Mary said to the, and, and he says, and your baby is going to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and he's going to sit on the throne of David. He's the culmination of everything promised in the Old Testament. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I don't know a man? And the angel answered her and said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. And then the angel says, for with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. I love this. It's like the angel standing there saying, remember guys, they don't understand. That's a, that's a big part of the point. They're still learning about God by watching God do this stuff with us. So the angel's not saying, I understand. But when it's all said and done, Mary, for with God, nothing shall be impossible. You've heard that passage, but did you know an angel said that? Perhaps you did, but it's good to remember how, what kind of perspective does the angel had? You can't believe the things I've seen, Mary. God can do anything he wants to. I don't understand what he's doing here, Mary. This has never happened before. I'm just, I'm a messenger. I'm just the messenger. But, psst, psst. God can do anything he wants to, anytime he wants to. All right, next time. Joseph is thinking about divorce and this woman who's now pregnant With a child that's not his, even though they've already signed a contract to be married, as was customary in that day, and she's his fiance, and his he doesn't know what to do with any of this, and he's thinking about putting her away. Guess what? God sends him an angel. And 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 after thinking about putting her away, Matthew 120, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Hey, Joseph, God's got this. It's going to be okay. I don't understand. It, it's, but the Holy Spirit's doing crazy things. Just, Joseph, don't be afraid. Then they're at the birth. I mean, imagine now the God of the universe has become an embryo in the womb of a teenage virgin. And now, nine months later, the God of the universe is born as a baby and is lying in a manger. And what do the angels do? The angels do what the angels had always done. They show up and they worship him. Do they understand that the God they saw create the world as a baby? Do they get it? Nope. They're still trying to figure it out. Still to this day, trying to figure it out. But this is what they do. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. And suddenly the heavenly host that had been hanging out in heaven, 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands, an innumerable company of angels were told in Scripture, they transfer their residence from the throne in heaven, and they gather, if you please, around a manger, and they do what they've always done. They worship him. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God. Then 
The time they don't show up in the whole story is the crucifixion. The crucifixion, now, just imagine what an angel must have been thinking. Here's the only thing we hear about the angels at the crucifixion. It's that Jesus said to, to somebody who was accusing him and, and getting ready to put him to death, he said, if I wanted to right now, I could ask the Father, and he'd send 12 legions of angels here. Now, you can imagine in the world of the Spirit that there are now these this innumerable company of angels are watching, ready to pounce, and to save God from crucifixion. But because he's going to taste death for all of us, he submits himself to the cross, and the angels watch as the God-man dies on the cross. They watch as he's buried in the grave. But then things get back on course for the angels, and their, their message changes a little bit when he's raised from the dead. Now you get a sense the angels are like, now we're And now when people show up at the empty tomb, not believing that he's been raised from the dead, well, listen to 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 what the angels do now. Mary shows up at the tomb, and she looks in the tomb, and uh, uh, there are two angels who are sitting in it, and, and they ask her, John 12, 13, woman, woman, why are you crying? Woman, I mean, I wish I had a, I wish I had more of a, the ability to speak um, with attitude that some of you in this room do. Woman, I don't know how to do it in Indiana, but there's not much attitude in Indiana. Woman, why are you weeping? Do you get the, do you get, what, what, what? And, and why, why, why is the angel saying, why are you weeping? Because the angel now seems to be a little frustrated because people are surprised that God's done what he said he would do through Jesus who had prophesied his own resurrection. When you pick up in, a, in another gospel, Luke chapter 24, 5 through 7, Mary and some women are in the garden now. And in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, angels, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee that he was going to do this? Why, why? It's Easter morning, guys. Why are you singing a sad song? Why are you crying? And then you see the same kind of thing now. 40 days later, Jesus ascends to heaven. You know, you can understand that the people who are with him are kind of freaked out looking at him ascend to heaven. But the angels, it's like the angels by this time have had it with us. Acts chapter 1, verse 10, and while they, all the guys and gals who were standing there, are staring up into heaven, mouths agape, the angel shows up and says, uh, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? He's left like this. He's going to come back like that. Look, what he told you to do is to go to Jerusalem and to wait for the promise of the Father, which he's going to give you in just a few days. But if you're standing here with that stupid look on your face, like you're still surprised that God does does God things, then none of the things that you're supposed to do is going to happen. Stop gazing and get with it. Go to Jerusalem and do what he told you to do. And I just love this picture of angels being mystified at the interaction that's going on now between God and humanity. So let's then pick up the text in Hebrews 2, 
with this idea of angels in our mind, and let's dig in for the rest of our time to what today's text specifically says. And let's do it like this. Three big ideas in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. The first is that Jesus makes us who we were made to be. Jesus makes us who we were made to be. And now I read to you at the beginning all of Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. Now I'll read this section to you in pieces. The first piece, Hebrews 2, 5 through the first part of verse 8. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. So now... God of the universe showed up. He's greater than the angels. Here are the reasons he's greater than the angels. But he says, as great as angels are, it's not to angels, it's not the angels who are going to rule the world to come. But there is a place where someone has testified. And now he's going to quote from the eighth Psalm. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. He actually changes the wording of the Psalms just a little bit to talk, it appears, about human beings in general, and then Jesus, the Son of Man in particular. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A Son of Man that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. So, the angels were not made to rule this world. As important of a role as they play, they were not made to rule this world or the world to come. Who, were, who was made to rule the world? We were. We were. Human beings under the authority of God were made to rule this world. And we did in the beginning... And we will at the end, and what happened at the beginning and what will happen at the end is supposed to affect us while we're in the middle. Okay? So, if you, you know, I've said this a thousand times, probably literally over the years here preaching, but this is the lens through which I see scripture. And I say this a lot because I, this is the proper lens through which to see scripture. If you're thinking about the whole arc of God's story, this is a key understanding you must have about God and yourself. It's this. If you want to know what things are supposed to be like, if you want to know what things are going to be like in the end, you have to look at how things were in the beginning. And when God created humanity and purposed them, here's what he said. God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may... Everybody, if you would, please say rule. Rule. And then he specifies some of that. And then God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule. And then he talks about all the things that they're supposed to rule over. The writer of Hebrews is about to make the point in this text that Jesus, through the gospel of salvation has reconciled us to God and restored us to our original purpose, which is to rule on the earth. And in doing this, he quotes from the eighth Psalm. So let's go to the eighth Psalm and let's look at what the eighth Psalm says, at least in part, not the entire Psalm. It would take too long. Psalm chapter eight, verses one through nine, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. 
When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. Now, the, the way that he says it in, in, in Hebrews 2, for reasons I hope I remember to explain, is he says, what is mankind that you're mindful of him? A son of man. And, and in doing so, he's referring to Jesus. But here, what is mankind that you're mindful of? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. Now, why is a writer of Hebrews, this pastor, writing to these discouraged Christians who are living in Rome in the mid-60s AD, why is he talking to them about this? Is it like a theology class? Is it, is it, is it, a, is it a, is it a class on anthropology? I mean, because this gets into anthropology, the science of humanity. What, what is a human being? Is it, is it, is, is he, is, is it, is it a class on Christology? Because he gets into Christology, the doctrine of Jesus. Is that what he's doing? Is he trying to teach a class and bore everybody to tears and, and, and get them to fall asleep like some of you are probably tempted to do right now? No. He's writing to them because they're a group of Lonely, marginalized, discouraged Christians who feel less than. And they're thinking about giving up. And they're thinking about leaving Jesus and going back to the way their lives were before Jesus. And the writer of Hebrew comes, comes along and says, if you only knew who Jesus really was, you wouldn't even think about leaving him. But not only do I want you to know who he was, I want to remind you who you are. Because Jesus came so that you could be who God made you to be and who you were made to be was were rulers in the world to come and that's supposed to impact your present reality. You may feel dominated and put under and subject, but the fact is you, through Jesus, have been made for everything to be subject to you. Don't forget who you are. That's what he's saying. And so you have to imagine when you read the eighth psalm, you know, when I consider the heavens, the glory of your, the, of, of your work, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, you have to imagine in part standing out under the night sky and looking and seeing the glory of as much of the universe as you're able to see. And you know how small you feel when you're in a place where it's just you standing alone looking out there and you think you can hear the psalmist saying, what is a human being that you, the creator of all that, would care about me? And then you have to imagine some Christian sitting in a house church in Rome who just feels all beat up by the world around them saying, who am I that God would care about me? I'm down here all by myself, left alone in this big crazy world. But see, the, then the writer of Hebrews says, no, I'm going to remind you who you were meant to be. This, this psalm, I don't want to get too technical here, but it, it's, it is an important way to frame this in its origin is anthropological, which is to say it's about who human beings are. And, 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 and who we are, according to the eighth psalm, is that even though we may seem insignificant in this great big universe, we aren't, we aren't because God showed up and visited us through Jesus Christ. Okay? It's anthropological. But then in, the, in Hebrews chapter 2, when he says, not only what is humankind, but who is a son of man who's made a little lower the angels, he's talking about how that a son of man, Jesus, came to elevate human beings 
to who they were supposed to be. So all of a sudden, it's about Christology. It's about Jesus. The fact is, because of who Jesus is, Christology, we can become who we were made to be, anthropology. Jesus brings us back to our full human potential so that we are in the place that God wanted in the beginning and that we will have at the end where we literally are ruling over this planet. Sometimes, I'm going to guess, many of us do not feel like rulers at all. We feel like we're getting our butts kicked. But Scripture reminds us of who we are through Jesus Christ. The fact is, uh, uh, the Apostle Paul said when he wrote to the Corinthians, and he talked about how that Jesus was the first of many who'd be raised from the dead, and how that we would follow him in resurrection. He says that Jesus was raised from the dead. And in fact, I'll just read it to you. He says Jesus was raised from the dead. And then he talks about how the, then we're going to be raised from the dead. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 24, he says, Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God the Father after he has destroyed when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. So right now, Jesus sits at the right hand of God, waiting until all enemies are put under his feet. And where are his feet? Well, where is his, what, is, what is his body? Where is body? Where is feet? The fact is that he sits waiting in heaven for us to become who we were made to be so that we put everything under our feet, his feet, and subject this present world in a way that puts us in a position to rule in the world to come. So here's the second thing I want to say about this section of Hebrews. It's that this happened... But it's not yet fully realized, and it will happen. All right? So let's pick up Hebrews chapter 2, the middle now of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8. In putting everything under them, again, who is them? Them is us. Us is them. Thankfully, I'm not teaching a grammar class here. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them, yet at the present we do not see everything subject to them. So, what Hebrews teaches, and what all of the New Testament teaches, is that Jesus has already done everything necessary to restore us to our purpose, to who we were meant to be, yet we do not see the full realization of everything he has done Yet, See, we live in a place where Jesus, through his death, resurrection, and exaltation, already did everything that ever needs to be done for, for us to fully be everyone, everything we were made to be. However, we do not yet see that reality in every area of our everyday lives. We know that. See, on one hand, I can stand here all day long. And I literally could stand here all day long and talk to you about who Jesus is and who we are through Jesus. But tomorrow when you go to work, you're going to experience some things in your life where you don't feel like the person who God looked at and said, I want you to rule over 
things, and I want you to put all the bad stuff under your feet, and I want you to bring my kingdom in a way that establishes my authority in your day-to-day life. There's a a disconnect between who we were made to be and who we are in our practical everyday experience. And the writer of Hebrews acknowledges this. He says, "You were everything was made to be subject to you, but we don't yet see it. So, um, in theology, there's a very important concept. It's called the already and the not yet. Because both things are true, which is to say, Jesus has already done everything that needs to be done in order for us to be everything we were made to be, and we do not yet fully see that. But at the second coming of Christ in the new age, we will. Jesus called what happens at the second coming, the renewal of all things. And he said at the renewal of all things, and the word renewal there is a combination of two Greek words, one which means Genesis and one which means again. He says at the second coming, we're going to have Genesis again, the renewal of all things. And Matthew uh, chapter 19, verse 28 and 29 says that we are going to be sitting on thrones in the world to come, and we're going to be the rulers in the world to come. And that's a very important part of this whole idea. Hebrews 2.5 says it is not to angels he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. In the world to come, we are the rulers, not the angels. We are the rulers. So you say, okay, well, that, that's, that's good. And see, this is the blessed hope. This is a reason to keep attending church. This is a reason to hang in there and not drift away. This is a reason to stay the course and be faithful to Jesus. Because in the end, we win. But I also understand that right now, some of us don't feel like we're winning, just like people in Rome in the first century didn't feel like they were winning. See, we're in the already but not yet stage. An analogy I've used before, and I'll use again, is how that um, the, the Second World War was really considered to have been won when the Allies invaded Europe at Normandy. That was June of 1944. That was called D-Day, right? V-Day, the day that victory was actually declared, didn't happen for uh, almost a year, May of 1945. And in that intervening year, there was this, this what, what was called the mopping up operation. Where, but, but the mopping up operation was the bloodiest year of the entire war. Everybody knew when, when, when the Allies got a foothold at Normandy, the Second World War was over. It was just a matter of time. But now the Allies had to go and they had to secure their victory. Town by town by town they would go and they would root the Germans out. And that's where uh, there's this historical event called, uh, I think a private name Ryan was saved somewhere in there. Saving Private Ryan. I'm sorry, guys. I, I put you to sleep. Uh, that was a pretty good joke, actually, I thought, but evidently I'm the only person here. I feel like a Jewish Christian in AD, the mid-AD 60s, the response to that joke really rejected. But <clears throat> I know who I am in Christ. Anyway, so they, they're going from town to town and they're taking back towns and, 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 and everybody knew they were going to win. Hitler knew it was over. Everybody knew it was over, but they, they had to secure their victory and see from the cross till the age to come. We're in a season where we have a job to do to defeat 
evil, where we have been tasked with bringing the kingdom of God to this world, where more and more our lives look like, our lives were meant to look like in the beginning, and our lives are meant to look like in the future. This is a progressive reality. This is also part of the reason that, 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 that God decided that, that we would have free will. See, you can't have, some people might say, well, why in the world, when he died on the cross and he resurrected from the dead, why didn't that settle at all? And why now are we involved in this battle against good and evil, spiritual warfare and mopping up and securing territory and bringing the kingdom? Why? Well, this is how God is setting up who is going to rule with him forever to see what we do now. See, see, there can't be free will unless there's a choice. There has to be a decision between good and evil. If there's only one choice, you can't exercise your will. You're just a robot. God doesn't want to live in eternity with people who are ruling over this planet, who are just robots. He wants people caught in the mix of this great cosmic battle who believe in him, who follow him, who obey him, who work with him, who war for him, who bring his kingdom to this planet. And that's part of how he's deciding who's going to sit on thrones forever ruling as he made Adam and Eve to rule in the beginning. Well, they blew it, but we can't. So the writer of Hebrews says, you were made to rule at the end to come. So you can't give up. You, you're, you're so discouraged you're not going to church. You're so discouraged you're thinking about going to the synagogue. You're so discouraged you're thinking about going to, you know, uh, back to pagan religion, some of you Gentiles. Wait a minute. Do you know who Jesus is? Do you know who he made you to be? Do you know that you're going to rule the whole world in the age to come? Come on, guys. All right, here's the third and final thing. And the keyboard player's coming out. And the fat man is about to sing. The fat lady is going to sing. I really have to help everybody out today, don't I? <laughs> Before I get to my third point, let me just read you a passage of Scripture. Romans 5.17. For if by the trespass of one man, Adam's sin, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? We should, because of who we were made to be and because of who we will be, guys, we should enter into life tomorrow with an expectation of reigning. Don't let yourself be some poor little victim Christian. Don't let yourself just expect that you're just going to get kicked around in life. That's not who you are. You pray the kingdom of God into your sphere of influence until the rule of God shows up and that things are done more and more the way they were meant to be. Things begin happening on earth as they were meant to happen in heaven. Don't let yourself show up to life and life just knock you around. You knock life around. I mean, seriously, when you understand who you are, I just, I have no patience for us poor little Christians just going to hold the fort till Jesus comes and I hope we can make it. Nobody likes us and the media is so mean to us and sometimes politics go against our way and I just, oh, we're just such poor little, poor little, poor little people. No, we're not. We're going to rule the world in the age to come. 
I'm expecting tomorrow to have success. I'm expecting tomorrow to have victory. I'm expecting tomorrow, in spite of what the news says, to keep believing the good news and know that I serve a Savior who sits at the right hand of God waiting for his enemies to be put under his feet, and I'm one of his feet. I'm really rambling around now. Let me go to part three. Play louder, it'll make people feel good, Eric. Here's the third thing. We must look at Jesus. No, really, you control it, Joe. Hebrews 2.9, and I'm wrapping this thing up. So what does he say at the end of Hebrews 2.8? He says, we've been made for all things to be subject to us. He says, yet everything isn't subject to us yet. And then there's, there's what, what he says. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that the, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So what is the writer of Hebrews saying now to sum this up? In Jesus, God spoke to us to show us the way things will be. Jesus, a son of man, became the perfect human being and did for us what needs to be done in order for us to realize our God-destined potential. So sometimes when you feel like you're getting beat up by life, look at Jesus. And remember, Jesus was made a little lower than the angels for a little while so he could do what needed to be done to save you. And then he ascended to heaven. He's exalted the right hand of God. And he's there waiting until the age to come when all of us can be fully realized as human beings and live the life he meant for us to live in every way now and forever. When things get bad, look at Jesus who already made the way when we see him in his exalted position, then we know what is real and what will be real for us in the world to come. Let me close with this passage, Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. I'm going I'm to move forward and say, you know, the logic of this builds up all the way through Hebrews until you get these words of exhortation like Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, this guy says to the Hebrews, don't give up. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Jesus.